Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today with me in the studio is Aaron Moser, whose last name is pretty well known within the state. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So your current claim to fame is? Well, I was CEO um, for five years, and as of two years ago, when I found my dream property, I stepped back as CEO. Fred Prescott joined the company, and it's afforded me the role of chairman, which is really more about managing my family and family expectations of the business. Uh, I would say moving from my prior 30 years as the head of commercial sales into the CEO role, that was a very difficult leap. Going from CEO to chairman has chosen to become much more difficult than I would have imagined. Really? Yeah. Trying to be the buffer between a management team that's trying to prepare the company for the next 50 years, which we've just had our 50th anniversary, and set the groundwork and put in the disciplines and and the tools to help us sustain another 50 years while maintaining what's special about our brand. Well, I remember being in Boston and walking past one of your stores in Boston. I don't know if it's called a showroom or what they're called exactly. Showrooms. Showrooms. You can't buy furniture out of the store. Okay. Well, then I guess that's what they're called, showrooms. This is why why you asked why I do this, even though I'm a doctor. It's because I like to learn stuff. So this way I get to kind of live vicariously through these conversations. So we walked by one of these showrooms, and it was just so the quality, even standing on this Boston street, was so striking, and it, it was so evocative of Maine. And it, it really made me feel proud to think, oh, this is a company, this is a Maine company, and here they are, down here in Boston. We try to ground ourselves more in the craft and in the tangible work that happens rather than Obviously, the end game is a beautiful piece of furniture, but I think we identify ourselves as the makers, the people who are doing the work. Um, My dad used to say, the only reason he has a sales manager is to get rid of the things he makes. So I think some of that, I hope, rings true for us in the future, is that the making and the community of people who um, do the work, that's really who we are. Um, The showrooms are a manifestation of that but not necessarily the end goal. Um, But if we achieved a graceful look and you were happy with it, great. And that is what I was saying. Not not to say that you have an elite brand per se, just that it didn't seem in any way out of place because the work is so beautifully done. Yeah, thank you. Well, it travels well through time and space. Our products, uh, if, if done well, if executed well, and honestly, they will fit a pretty broad range of environments and households and lifestyles. And that's really the goal, is to not put ourselves necessarily in a, in a, uh, in a luxury. Uh, obviously, our pieces show up in beautiful homes, very luxurious homes. But it should be as comfortable in a uh, very uh, minimal home as well. So in moving, you said, from sales to CEO to chairman, mm. How did I'm interested in how the skill sets transferred or maybe didn't? Not sure. I don't know if the skills transferred as well. I think what I, uh, just speaking for myself, I'm sure others may have a different view on it, but um, there's a there's been a bit of tenacity involved in what I do. What I'm really good at is helping customers 
uh, pull, pull their vision out and help them design a solution, whether it be a, one piece of furniture or a million-dollar library where they have challenges to do fundraising and they have to facilitate and sell to their colleagues this idea of a beautiful handmade product that will help be an extension of their brand. Um, that takes time and patience. So in order for me to be successful in that space, uh, it would take years um, to get through. So you don't quit. You have to stay you have to stay on it. And so I think not quitting and staying the course and upholding the brand values were probably what translated. What didn't necessarily translate is an administrative uh, prowess or a strategic prowess, like you know, laying things out in a very organized way. Um, d- doing the work is what stuck. So I was happy to have Fred join the company. Uh, it, it gave us a new focus and a new, um, a new sense of structure for investing in the future. I believe the family is behind me in that. We're very happy right now with where we are. We've uh, just, this, just this past week implemented a new ERP system, Enterprise Resource Planning. It's a, basically a computer system. It's the way you run your business. And it required disciplines in all areas to be in harmony with the, with the vision for the future. Um, the huge amount of work that just happened. There's no way I could have implemented that. Uh, it takes way too much discipline and way too much structure. None of the Mosers could have done it. So um, we're very happy to have that done. At the same time, in order to keep up with a, a challenging labor market uh, and increasing costs, we're uh, bringing technology into the shop in a big way. Um, so major investments this year preparing us for the future. So when you talk about technology, are you talking about um, different tools that can be used in the crafting? Or are you talking about... Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, technology has as much to do with planning as it does hardware. I mean, a lot of people, when they see woodworking and talk technology, they're thinking robotics or CNC machines. And yes, those are we've had those for many years. Um, but how you use them and how you optimize them and how you schedule and how you plan... Um, because what you don't want to do is put the machine in place and then design products to satisfy it. We've been a victim of that in history. Um, Americans will often, not just Americans, obviously the world has seen technology drive design, and that's kind of dangerous from a, you know, if your goal is to um, realize design and product vision, but for us, uh, that is just a machine to help facilitate what might be an unpleasant task. Let's look at repetitive work injury. If you can replace something that is maybe harmful to you with a machine to help aid that, it allows you to focus on fit and finish and material selection. And after all, you're putting your name on the piece. So When you're engaging in a design project, and I don't mean you, I mean people from your company, mm-hmm. um, how long start to finish about does it take for any given project to... How long does it take or how long should it take? Oh, okay. Let's go with, well, let's start with <laughs> how long should it take. Let's... It should take a year. 
Okay. You, you should you should start the design process early enough so that your team has the opportunity to um, test drive it to make sure there's it's, it can be facilitated that you can find the material that you can find the right vendors that uh, when first or second prototype is done the marketing team has enough time to find the right environment to shoot it in so it's it, it can take time we tend to be very um, and again, I'm talking about the Mosers here mostly. We tend to be more on the creative side. So when we create something, we think, well, that's that's where the work happens. You're gonna have to have it created. I think what we're learning now that implementing a creative idea into a production environment is really the challenge, and it re- it requires a lot more people. But we can, you know, six months is fe- is doable. Uh, a year is probably more realistic. When you're creating a design or your team is creating a design, I'm assuming that multiple different individuals touch that process. Mm -hmm. How do you facilitate the working together of that team from beginning to end? Well, you bring them in early and there's a fine line between consensus building and um, an autocratic, like this is what we're doing. Um, I think it requires... I think it requires time and um, giving people, everybody, a voice in the process. So I think what you just said is really interesting because when you give people a voice, there there does have to be a balance because if you give yeah. everybody a voice, not everybody's voice is going to be able to right. tra- be translated into some actuality, mm-hmm. which doesn't make everybody happy. Well, life's tough. Sometimes you have to you do have to call it at some point. I mean, David... My brother David, who just we just finished a chair, the 50th anniversary chair, the 1972 chair. I don't know if you spoke with him about it, but um, he obviously has to be willing to compromise as well. So at the end of the day, these products have to be profitable. You don't want to wait until after you're shipping the furniture to realize you failed on that one. I mean, there are a lot of goals. Profitability is one of them. It's not necessarily the most important one. It depends on what the goal of the product is. Um, but if you don't have the people who are responsible for the implementation into production, if they're not signed on early enough, um, you're going to carry that anxiety all the way through the process. So you want to get them signed on as soon as possible. I didn't actually talk with David about the 50th anniversary chair. Oh. Mostly I spoke with David about um, his, his sculpture. His own sculptures. His own sculptures, yeah. yes. Um, and for those of you who listen to Radio Maine, you'll recognize the same last name, David Moser, and he's obviously a Portland art gallery artist. Um, so I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the decision-making behind the 50th anniversary chair. Why, what, what, what was it about having a speci- specifically a chair? Why that? They're symbolic in nature. A chair can be a successful product because you don't need a chair, especially if it's a chair that's freestanding. Um, you could look at a, at a chair, a lounge chair, or, or, or an occasional chair and fall in love with it and say, I'll make room for that. Like, I don't need a lifestyle change to have an excuse to buy it. So he said, we need to have a product that can be um, freestanding, that can give anybody who falls in love with it a reason to buy it. They don't have to have, um, they don't have to have a new dining room or, or a new bedroom. So a chair is 
it's practical in that sense. It's very symbolic. Uh, if you look at chairs throughout history, they're, they have great meaning. Um, I'll tell you about the New York Public Library chair in a minute, but that's a very symbolic chair. The chairs we built for the Pope, very symbolic. But not just us, chairs in history. The word chairman has to do with the chair, maybe the only chair in the meeting uh, the chairman would sit in. So chairs are symbolic. But how did we come, how did we uh, work with David to determine what style to chair and what should the message be? What statement does the chair make? Um, and we agreed early on that it, if it's going to represent a 50-year culmination of a business, it should include elements of some of our more successful iconic products. So the 1972 chair, if you dissect it, and you should ask David to do that, you're going to see influences from my father and David and others in that chair, specifically um, the joinery and the material use and some of the, some of the geometry of the chair. Even though it's a very unique chair for us, we've not done anything like that, it's made up of motifs and elements that exist in other pro successful products in our line. So we kind of determined that early on that it needs to speak to the history of the business, not just the future. I think before you started talking about this, I hadn't really considered the historical nature of chairs and the importance but as you're talking about this, when I graduated from my residency in family medicine from the Maine Medical Center, they actually they gave, gave me a chair, a chair that yeah. had the Maine Medical Center mm -hmm. um, logo embossed on it. Yeah. And it was. It was very special because it was a very significant kind of, I, I don't know, milestone yeah. that I had reached and passed. And now... It's, yeah. It sits there, and it reminds me that this this was a very this was a solid so, piece of work that I went through. Hopefully, it wasn't black with spindles. Uh, it may have been actually. Yeah. Well, the college chair. Um, we haven't been able to crack that market, but there is a there is a product called a Nichols and Stone chair, which is found in all the bookstores in all the colleges and universities. And of course, in order to make it economically feasible for the bookstore, they have to buy it at a certain price. And, so we haven't seriously tried to explore it, but we have definitely, um, we've kind of bounced on the edge of that in a lot of ways. We have several clients who come back to us every year for either, you know, you know graduating faculty or, or professors. Um, so yeah, the, the chair is a symbolic piece. It's a symbolic gift, and it's something that you take with you in life. And you were mentioning that the person in charge was the only one who actually got a chair at some point? Well, if you go back to the earliest shaman, I mean, they're the only one sitting yeah. on something high. Maybe it's right. a stump. But, yeah, a chair is a symbolic piece for sure. You have, is it four? four? Three uh, brothers. Three brothers. So yeah. there's you and three brothers. Yes. Yes. So there's four of us. And there's, and you've obviously been part of this family business, it sounds like, your entire career. Uh, no, well... There was the childhood portion. Sure, sure, sure. Then we all left, and then we came back. So what was it like to work with your three brothers in a business? Uh, very competitive. Yeah, we were very competitive. We were all seeking, you know, dad's approval, you know, constantly. Even today, even at 60 years old, we're still vying for that. Um, we all bring our own 
skills to the business. Um, you know, I can I can tell you, Andy is a fantastic woodworker. He's probably he's he's one of the best woodworkers in the family. Um, my brother Matt was an engineer and designer. David is a sculptor, uh, and I'm a sales guy. So we're all very different, but we're but we're also all very much the same in that regard. So we found in the business we found our comfortable places, and it worked for a long time. Now my brother Matt, he left the business 15 or 20 years ago. Um, but we still stay very close. So I would say it was tough. It was tough on my mom, uh, not having a daughter. Um, and uh, the business, the business was the fifth child really in many ways. So it was very near and dear to us. And it was, it, it sculpted our personalities in a large sense. Um, that business was our recreation, and it was also our income at the same time. So everything uh, revolved around the business. And hopefully you don't grow up and regret that and resent the fact that the business took precedence. But at least it didn't for me. Um, I'm glad we had it. Well, I think about another prominent main family that transitioned from pretty much entirely the family owning the business and running the business to others coming in mm -hmm. and still having people still having a hand in the business. And that's L.L. Bean mm -hmm. and the Gorman family. Mm. Um, and it's interesting to me that this kind of the, the, the legacy nature of both of these organizations, probably it has created some both some stability and some value and and also an interesting, unique opportunity mm. because you are still related to people. Sure. Well, Tom is probably the, in the Moser family, my dad is still the most, I think, connected to the business. I mean, he needs it like air, okay? It's, it's, it's what sustains him at 88 years old, and he has every right to have that. Um, my brothers and I have other interests, so it's not just the business. And because we have that other things, whether it's, you know, our houses or our families. Um, it's as we've aged, it maybe dilutes our ability to have that same level of engagement. So at one level, we you have to have an outside management. It can't go on forever this way. So getting getting to that point was has been very hard to to be able to let go and embrace others in your business, in your home. Um, that's, those are the feelings you have sometimes. It's almost like having somebody come into your, into your home and uh, tell you what the rules are. So you have, to, you have to embrace it. You have to trust. You have to trust the process. And you have to have patience and give it time. I remember interviewing somebody who was involved with an organization that had to do with family-owned businesses here in Maine. And this person talked about the importance, like actually the absolute critical nature of working through a succession plan and, and, and actually upfront kind of acknowledging that this needed to happen. Mm -hmm. And also specifically saying, challenging, very, very challenging. No, our situation is not unique. The founder, asking the founder to let go, I mean... Yeah, I don't think my dad's that unique in that sense. I think he's a brilliant person. Uh, and as I said, he he's formed his 
his um, his view on the world. I think, obviously, his early childhood experiences helped. But as he, as the business became successful, it's it's how he formed his view on the world. And so, any changes to the business, as he understands it, as he knows it, is a is potentially a threat against that. So, and with the with the internet and the new marketing that's happening and social media of which he is void of. And increasingly, you know, my brothers and I, we're not glued to our phones watching every Instagram post. We're missing out on some really good things. So when something negative happens, we sometimes don't have enough of the goodness to understand how it's balanced out. So, you know, I, I have a Facebook account only so I can monitor our website, our Facebook account. Um, you have to be able to do that. Um, there was a time when 100% of who we are uh, was visible only through a catalog. And that catalog was everything. It was a coffee table book. So you could judge how we were doing in messaging and, and artistic style, um, product mix, pagination. It could all be done in, by just looking at the book. Well, now our catalog is a small fraction of everything that we use to communicate with. So that that makes it tough on a, on a founder. I should say founders because my mother was there too. Tom, Tom gets the name of the company on, on the, over the door, but my mother was right there and this company wouldn't be here without her. So I have to make that plug for sure. What's your mother's name? Mary. Mary. Well, Mary... I give you credit. Yeah. Raising four competitive boys. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, she, she, she took the brunt of it for sure. As we're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, I have five brothers and four sisters. So in my, and we're, That's a good balance. Yeah, they were, my mom did a good job. My mom's name is Mary also, but my dad's name is Charlie. Mary and Charlie, they did a good job. Um, and those personalities, I mean, we get along really very well. And also we're very distinct and different individuals. Mm-hmm. People may look at the Belial family and say, oh, well, it's, you're all just Belials, right? But we're really not all yeah. just Belials. We all professionally have chosen slightly different paths or very different paths and personally mm-hmm. are very different people. So it would be interesting. I can't really conceive of us all trying to come together <laughs> and trying to make a living together, even four of us. Yeah, very very interesting. Although also also such an interesting opportunity because yeah. you are working so closely with these people that are related we're, to you. We're very lucky to have had this. Where it goes in the future, I don't know, but I know we're lucky that we had it because in and I think families are lucky when they are when they live in close proximity, so they can see each other several times a year. I mean, I know families where they're fragmented around the country, and they may see each other every several years. Um, my parents grew up in outside of Chicago, and we still have relatives out there. The Wilsons, who are on my mother's side, they all lead very independent lives. They have their own careers. They have their own interests. But they're together a lot, and they don't have to compete with one another at all. And uh, I think if there are any regrets, which, again, there are a few, I would say my mother wishes 
the business had more to do with uniting than driving wedges. I think it, 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 when you aggregate it all together, I think it actually did unite more. But when you're watching the sausage making all the time, you might lose track of that. So, yeah. Yeah, we're lucky. Well, and I can relate in some part to what you're describing because my husband and I work together on this show because he's the owner of the Portland Art Gallery. And so he and Emma Wilson and their team, I mean, I live and breathe the work that he does with the art gallery. I mean, it's even though I am a doctor on my other side, I mean, this is a life that we live. I think when you have a business, especially a small business like his, but I can imagine even Thomas Moser. I mean, if you have a business that is in your family, that's what you talk about. Right. And, you know, when sales are good, great. When sales aren't that good. Yeah. Who are you going to blame? <laughs> well, I was going to say, what are we going to do Who about it? Blame? Yeah. But, uh, but yes. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that that's a really, um, that's not something everybody experiences because a lot of people, they leave their homes, they go to work, they come back, maybe they talk about their job but then they have a separate life yeah. and then the next day they get up and do it again. Yeah. And and I know what it's like to do both of those things. Mm. I think the interdependence that you develop as a result of that, but also the high level of knowledge and experience yeah. and varied experiences yeah. are really invaluable in many ways. No, exactly. Um, we don't like to admit it, but we learn from each other more than we give ourselves credit for. Aaron, we've been talking about the last 50 years. Mm. And I know you have some new and excited and invested individuals who are working with um, your family and are really bringing Thomas Moser forward. Um, what types of things do you see for the next 50 years? I believe the groundwork is set for the values of the business to remain strong. I mean, we have set pretty clear expectations around quality, how we treat one another, how we treat the community that we're in, how we treat our customers. Those have been the priority. So we've seen profits come and go, but those values have remained steadfast. And the strategic plan, as it's currently written, sets those as the priority, continues the priority. What we're doing a little differently now, though, is we're saying let's ensure that there is planful profit. Because if you think about the past, profit didn't feel like it was an important word to us. But in fact, if you want to have a sustainable workforce and a happy workforce, you must achieve profit. It has to be a closed loop. So I think it's, it's codified and it's tied into the strategic plan now. And it's been authored by a group of really smart people who have also internalized who we are as a brand. So all I can say is super grateful to have the long-term employees, the folks who have just joined us, and a great management team to execute this strategy. So we're, we're prepping for the next 50 years now. And hopefully beyond. Well, when 50 years comes, I'll let you know. Hope I'm around to a That sounds good. It. Yeah. Well, Aaron, I really appreciate your willingness to come in and talk about Thomas Moser and your experience. And um, it's obviously a wonderful product. I think it represents the state of Maine well. It's something that we all feel connected to. Um, but it's also a great, it really is a great family story because I think there are a lot of Maine families that are trying to work on wonderful Maine businesses. Not always easy. No, but it's not. It's important to kind of understand, I think, 
what that actually looks like. Yeah. So that we know that a lot of effort goes into the end product that we're all enjoying. So thank you. Thank you. I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and I've been speaking with Aaron Moser, the chairman of Thomas Moser. If you want to learn more about their products, please go to the, one of their showrooms or to the internet, to their website. I, I'm anticipating many of us are going to want to see the 50th anniversary 1972 chairs as a result of this conversation today. I really appreciate the time you've taken to come in and have this discussion with me. Thank you, Lisa.